On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we talk to George Walker, playwright whose play about the life of Rocco Perry and his lesser-known wife is opening at Theatre Aquarius. It's a fascinating story about a well-known Hamilton story with a little bit of a twist. Also, this week marks the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web. Different from the internet, we call it the same thing, different. A historian who specializes, who teaches about the history of the web joins us. It's a fascinating story of how we got to this point in society where our entire lives are controlled by our computers and the connections we make through them. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. In an hour or so, from right now, a new play is going to be debuting at Theatre Aquarius. It is called Steel City Gangster, a hometown story of crime, punishment, anger, betrayal, revenge, violence, and madness. That's the full title. That's a, that's a mouthful. That's a lot of stuff that they're packing into a play. It is the story of mob boss Rocco Perry and his wife Bessie Starkman, who may in fact have actually been the brains behind the operation. She may have been the real mob boss. Uh, the person who wrote this play is George F. Walker, who is one of Canada's most prolific playwrights. He joins us now. Uh, George, thanks for doing this today. Oh, sure. So as I read through the name of this, a story of crime, punishment, anger, betrayal, revenge, violence, and madness. I'm guessing then that uh, based on that, this play is a perky, uplifting musical. I had this moment. <laughs> Um, I don't know if there's any music, but uh, there might be just a music of a tortured soul in the middle of it or something. I, I, um, it is what it is, you know. I think we're the audience to discover what it is, actually, you know. What drew you to this story? Because you're, you're not a Hamiltonian, are you? I don't think you are. Um, no, what what no, drew not. you to this story? A few years ago, I was approached to, um, about writing a movie about him. And, uh, and that, that fell through. But uh, and, but I I was made aware of him at that point and started reading about him and thinking about him and uh, when the movie fell through the idea of writing about him didn't fall through for me I was always on the, in the back of my mind um, uh, fascinating story really about you know uh, about uh, this guy and his wife you know an Italian immigrant who comes uh, winds up we worked for a while in the ward in Toronto a slum in Toronto and uh, where he was a uh, yeah, kind of an um, uh, kind of uh, enforcement uh, uh, kind of little gang that he worked with, and then he moved to Hamilton and he got in St. Catharines all around that area, and he went to work in a bakery. And uh, this is where it gets interesting for me that he had then fell in love with the wife of the owner of the bakery, an Orthodox Jewish woman, and she he he and she ran away. She left two children, two children, and. Uh, ran away with him, and you're, as uh, you said in your intro, she became uh, his partner, his conciliary, really, you know, his business partner, and uh, and then she uh, she was uh, gunned down. I mean, it's like, in some ways, it's, uh, it's its own kind of Canadian Bonnie and Clyde, as mm. much as it is anything, you know, so there's a great love at the core of this. Uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, their great love which is at the core of the show, at the core of their lives, um, and then a bunch of other stuff, you know, how he... Uh, had distant and yet intimate uh, dealings with uh, American gangsters. Very Canadian-American story there, you know. Uh, I think he tried to insinuate himself more into their lives. She uh, she expanded the... Uh, I mean, he was basically a bootlegger. She expanded the activity uh, of the gang. Um, so I just, I just... The more you, the more I kind of uh, found out about him, the more, and then I just put it away, you know. And then I was talking to Ron Ulrich at... Uh, at um, Peter Aquarius a few years ago, and uh, 
I said, I, I think I have to write this, you know, because it's, it's still in my head. And he said, well, go ahead and write it. Just give you a little bit of commission and money. I wrote it, and I, I sent it to him, and he decided to do it. Now I don't want to I don't want to offer any spoilers. I haven't seen the play yet. Obviously, it's opening night tonight, so I don't know if I'm actually offering any spoilers. So you can cut me off here at any point if I'm going to ruin something. But he, she was, as you say, she was gunned down. He he disappeared, right? Rocco Perry was never found. He just eventually just disappeared. There's a lot of stories about where he went, and uh, I speculate about that in the play and what happened to him. I speculate based on some knowledge. Uh, given that he had some interest in working again with the American mobs. So, uh, yeah, yeah, no one really knows. I mean, there are a lot of rumors about him, you know, and a lot of stuff out there. But you can't just uh, not have an opinion about this stuff when you write. So, I mean, I just, it's very, it's not a, it's not a biopic, you know. It's not, I never wanted to tell the definitive, uh, mm. it's, it's my version, it's my take on his life. So, uh, so the highlights, the a- actions in the play are the things that affected me. So that's what I wrote about. I mean, you could just take that, unless you're all sorts of people in Hamilton have actually written or are thinking about writing this story themselves. And so I think what you do in something like that is uh, just let the, let the story kind of affect you. And then when you put it out there, you seem to be writing about the things that affected you the most. Um, his love life, his family, what he did, what he did with the Americans, what he didn't do with the Americans, and, and the stuff that happened. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff, you know. So as gangland uh, things like that is still going on in your city and in ours, yep. there's still a lot of that stuff. But it's a long and great history of uh, criminality. Well, many many people here, George, in the city of Hamilton, of course, would know the name Rocco Perry. It's a very familiar name. It's part of the legend of the city. I don't know how many people know much about Bessie Starkman. I, I didn't, and maybe I'm alone in that, but it seems like this is a, a sort of opening a part of the story that maybe some people aren't as familiar with. That's possible. You know, uh, again, I don't know it from, uh, you know, from inside the Hamilton lore. I just, you know, I don't know that that's what stood out for me. I mean, it wasn't just him. It was his uh, his the relationship with her. The love, kind of the love story inside the gangland, uh, the gang, the gangland movie or the gangland story. Mm. So, uh, come on now, you know he's an Italian immigrant. He falls in love with a, uh, an Orthodox Jewish woman, steals her away from his, her husband. I mean, uh, she's obviously complicit in that. But she left her two kids to go away with him, and then got seriously involved in his uh, his uh, dealings. She sounds sorry. She sounds a little bit like a bit of a terrifying woman, though. When you know some of the background of the stuff she did, she was uh, aggressive. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And she was she, not the, she was not the little woman behind the throne. You know? <laughs> I mean, she did a lot of stuff. One of the things that it's it touched upon a little bit in the play is that the, she allegedly, and I think more than allegedly, had an affair with the chief of police in Hamilton at the time which gave her a kind of a really good seat, a good point of view, and was able to use that. Uh, and he was okay with that. Rocco was okay with that, apparently, too. So all that's pretty interesting. But she was no, she was no little flower. She's not just someone who hung hang on. She had a very big presence. And uh, that's sort of part of the play, too, about who's the boss. Um, yeah. It worked for him. We were really confused about that, actually. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
talking with George Walker, who is a playwright who has written a play that opens tonight. It debuts tonight at Theater Aquarius. It's called Steel City Gangster, a hometown story of crime, punishment, anger, betrayal, revenge, violence, and madness. And George, it is always striking to me that, and I don't know that that's exactly why you did this, but the mob seems to hold a fascination for writers all over the place. It seems like one of those themes, one of those worlds that is just endlessly fascinating. Well, um, for sure. I mean, uh, it's complex. I guess a lot of people thought it would be the same thing that uh, Shakespeare is writing about, being criminals or gangland. And I was, can you imagine the amount of uh, writing that's going to go into the Trump mob? Mm. You know, when he's out of out of action, uh, it's just it's just got a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't know if I aimed uh, to do it just because of that, though. I guess there was other things. Somebody said, "Well, there's this famous ha- Hamilton gangster, and he was a bootlegger, and he had new kind of Al Capone and all this stuff." But again, it was the uh, it was Bessie. It was his relationship with that woman and what they became that kind of drew me to it, and. Uh, but yeah, there's stuff going on. So you know, action is better than better to write about than thought. You know, so uh, I, there's a lot of action in that life. You know, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's not a lot of reflection. There's a lot of stuff. But there is some reflection, but mostly it's about to, how do I get out of this trouble. A few moments ago, just before the break, you had mentioned, and I, I don't know if it's ironic or if it's coincidental or if it was intentional. I don't think it's te- intentional, but that this story now, this play comes out while there does seem to be an awful lot of surge in mob activity going on in the Hamilton, Toronto, Mississauga, Woodbridge area. They're, they're, all of a sudden, the mob seems to be back in the news. The timing, whether you intended it this way or not, your timing is great. Yeah, I couldn't have intended it because I don't hang out with those guys. I mean, I, I did go up once. I don't know if you know this. Up somewhere, uh, it's up where the McMichael collection is. There's a beautiful, I shouldn't say where it is, actually, but it's... Uh, it's in King City somewhere, and my wife and I wound up for uh, a brunch up there one day, and it was full of uh, connected guys, I think. You know, it was uh, very apparent what was going on in there. Very lovely place to eat, but, uh, you know, it, it's it's out there, right? It's, 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 still, it's still a living, breathing, breathing thing, certainly in New York, and, and, and certainly up here as well, Montreal, Hamilton, uh, that corridor. You know, it's a lot of stuff. It's never really gone away. I think sometimes it just rears its head because of, like, it's usually with their gangland shooting, right? It's usually a revenge thing. They haven't dropped those habits. They don't settle them. They don't really meet in a meet in a church basement and talk through their problems. <laughs> yeah, that that would kind of take some of the excitement out of the mob, I would well, think. I guess maybe that's why they get into the business. You know, they have a you know that that's the way they like to behave. That's the intensity of it. You know, or else you know they're just trying to relive their history, and uh, they're kind of like sometimes like some like modern life is trying to like uh, pretend it's a movie. You know, I mean, so they get themselves confused, you know, so is this really my life or, is I, or am I just doing this because I saw it in a movie at some point? You know, so that in itself is always something I wondered about and why so much of the activity is the same. It's like, you know, there was a shooting in the Italy a few years ago. A guy just walked into a cafe and popped someone, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, ah, oh, call him up, you know, talk to him for a while. And <laughs> you have to go kill him. You know, it's just, uh, there's nothing you can do except that, you know. I mean, I, the thing about this thing for me was, I mean, it's like I, I had this thought about writing it and I didn't write it. And uh, I just kept thinking about it over and over, you know, sometimes not at all for a year or two. And then I thought about it a little bit. And then when I sat down to write it, it just came out. And that happens sometimes, you know, it just 
pours out, and that means you've been thinking about it a lot more than you knew you know you have. You know what's fascinating so, about this though this 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 model or at least this world is that writing about the mob and we know there's crime involved and there's murder involved and there's all kinds of horrific things involved, but it seems like it's an acceptable kind of crime to write about and for people to go and quite frankly, I hate to use these terms, but to be entertained by, whereas if it was a a more modern or outside the mob world and you wrote a play about something and wanted people to be entertained, people would probably frown at that. If you wrote a a piece about the Bernardos and did it in in a play form, people would be outraged at you, but the mob were okay with that. Well, one is one thing about the mob. We're generally speaking, is that they kill each other. They don't reach. You know, it's kind of it's like a family business in that sense. In one family, they don't reach outside. They're not. They tend not to, like, except by accident, kill innocent bystanders. So I think that's something that gives you a bit of a leeway. You know, who who they're hurting? They're not. You know, they're not hurting innocent children out in the streets. Their business and their wars usually meet amongst themselves. So right away, you have some distance. They're green, and I couldn't go near Bernardo's story. I guess it's too sickening and too personal and too up. You know, it's just wrong. But the, this, you know, first of all, it's old, and, uh, and, and, and it's just, it's the same thing as like writers do. You need to have some distance on it, and it has to be. It's strange also. It's not only is it like uh, innocent, sometimes it's romantic as mm. well. Mm. And what's that about the old the Westerns as well? Look at all the violence in Westerns. You know, it's because it's distant. You can look at it in a different way. And generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, the outlaws and the, and the law, they killed each other. They didn't kill innocent kids walking down the streets, you know. His name is George Walker. The play is called Steel City Gangster, a hometown story of crime, punishment, anger, betrayal, revenge, violence, and madness. It runs from tonight at Theatre Aquarius until March the 30th. If you want to go see it, that's where you go find it. Uh, TheatreAquarius.org is the name of the website where you can get tickets. George, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Take care now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 30 years ago this week, the World Wide Web was created. It's a guy by the name, an English computer scientist by the name of Tim Berners-Lee is credited with introducing a new system of communicating on the internet, which used hyperlinks and user-friendly interfaces and all kinds of other things I don't really even understand, except that I know how to use it now. Um, the whole story is it's deep and it's a little confusing at times and it's complicated. So we're going to try and simplify it as much as we possibly can with Dr. Ian Milligan, who is a professor at the University of Waterloo. He is an editor of the Sage Handbook of Web History. He joins us now. Dr. Milligan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's try and go through this and and you can uh, fill in all the gaps because I've, you know, I know a tiny bit about this. But back in 1989, we've got this English scientist, computer scientist, Tim Berners-Lee, who creates the World Wide Web. We, we colloquially, colloquially call it the Internet today, but that's not really accurate, right? Because the Internet had existed before the World Wide Web. That's correct. So the Internet has a history reaching back into the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, whereas the World Wide Web, you know, I sort of think of it as a quote-unquote killer app for the Internet. But okay. the Internet's been floating around. You've got defense scientists working on it. You've got some you know, computer geeks and academics using it. And it's Tim Berners-Lee's World Wide Web that really, by the mid-1990s, when it sort of takes off, lets everyday people harness the power of the Internet. So before we jump into what Berners-Lee did, let's just take a minute or two here and talk about the Internet itself. What was the, the Internet? I know that, as you say, defense, the defense departments were using this stuff. What was the Internet before the Web? 
Yeah, the best way to understand the internet, um, you know, there's many different tendrils, and academics can make very complicated stories. But I, the simple story is it's sort of around, in the 1960s, you've got in the United States, the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. And people begin worrying, you know, what happens if there's a nuclear war? How can we control, you know, deployed forces and that sort of thing? At the same time, you've got people then working on theories of network communication. So, you know, the example I like to use is, think of a, you know, Toronto Pearson is a central hub. Everything has to go through Toronto Pearson. You've got other forms of networks that might have multiple hubs, like, say, Toronto, where you've got multiple subway connection spots. What the Internet is is a way to send messages with almost infinite loops, like sort of like the city grid of Hamilton, the city grid of Toronto, where point A to point B can be connected in hundreds of different ways. So the Internet is the idea. If you take a message, you split it up into like a 100 little messages. Networks talk to computer networks, and messages can flow even if nodes get knocked out due to technical problems or nuclear attacks. And it was, was it at that time when it first got started, was it entirely or almost entirely in the United States? Yeah, so one big, the one major origin of the internet is the ARPANET, which is run by the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or later the Defense, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So, I mean, they do all sorts of funky stuff trying to stop nuclear wars or, or you know, counterinsurgency in Vietnam. They're brainiacs in the Defense Department. And so they, starting in 1969, set up this thing called the ARPANET, which starts out just four nodes, mostly on the West Coast of the United States, but very quickly throughout the 1970s begins to connect West Coast to East Coast to the middle. Um, and people are able to communicate between universities and defense establishments and research units. So what then did Berners-Lee do, and you, you say it is a killer app, but what did he actually do then that took it from being a sort of an elite club, if we want to call it that, that a few people had access to, to something that opened it to the rest of the population? I mean, I think the, the sort of core underlying success of what Tim Berners-Lee, you know, begins to propose in March 1989, which is uh, why we're talking today, is really that idea of hypertext. So it's the idea of how could we join all these documents together in a way that they couldn't otherwise be connected. And so it's that, you know, that we take it for granted, the you know, underlined piece of text that we click. We're reading Wikipedia, we're reading about something, we click on a link, we click on a link, and two hours later we're reading some obscure article we never thought we'd start at. <laughs> um, so that, that is the fundamental thing that it adds. What it also is, and I think it's key, is crucial to what Team Berners-Lee cooked up was the idea of something that could read and write. And sometimes that write gets lost a bit as we sort of develop the World Wide Web. But it's the idea that, you know, someone can go, they can load up something on their computer, and they can write something for everybody else to see, and then connect it to other people through those hyperlinks. So it's easy to use. It builds connections. I think that social thing that we yearn for is really baked into the infrastructure of the web. Um, and it comes along at just the right time, just when personal computers are beginning to become more available. So with what he created, though, at the time that he created it, was there access for the average person? Let's say you and I in 1989 had a personal computer and a phone modem. Was there a way to put something onto this burgeoning World Wide Web? If I had a story that I wanted to do something with, was there somewhere for it to go? How, how did it work in those early days? That I, I understand he could find the system or come up with the idea to search for it and create a hyperlink, but where did everything mm -hmm. go to at that time? So it's sort of a slow takeoff. So his first idea happens in March 1989. The first website doesn't appear until late 1990. And so it really isn't, you know, if we came along, say, 1991, 1992, and we wanted to 
really get involved in the web, we basically need to be computer programmers. We need to figure out how to upload files. We need to use specialized software and that sort of thing. But like any new technology, the early stages were really, really tough. But by 1994, 1995, 1996, people begin creating ways to access the web. So Netscape Navigator comes along, which you know parts of which you can see baked into Firefox today. Letting everyday people now connect to the web. And then crucially, by 19, even as early as 1994, you start to see services. One of the ones we use is GeoCities, which would be like sort of like the Facebook of the early 1990s. Where finally, somebody can go to geocities.com, can give them their email address, and they get their free web page that they can write about, you know, their love, I'm not joking, like their love of the Toronto Maple Leafs, or their love of the family mm-hmm. tree, or their favorite Winnie the Pooh cartoon. And to me, that's the moment when the web ceases to be sort of the academic experiment of Tim Berners-Lee to really the sort of social experiment of letting anybody write really whatever they want on the World Wide Web. Because I understand that in those very early days, and, and Berners-Lee, it's, and correct, again, correct me where I'm wrong here, but yeah, yeah. The, the legend anyway is that he had a, a one-page drawing almost of clouds and lines and everything connecting that was that that has now become the uh, the the legendary picture of this but when it first came out of how this whole thing would work there were a lot of people that were poo-pooing the idea of this thing ever taking off yeah i mean the famous comment and if you go to if you go to cern which is where berners lee was working in 1989 you can actually see this proposal and a supervisor writes in the corner vague but exciting you know, sort of gives them a bit of funding to explore the question, but it, it certainly isn't like the thunderclap where everybody realizes what a revolutionary thing that happened. And even a year later, I mean, academics like to joke about this because we have sour grapes, but, you know, one of these first papers that Tim Berners-Lee authors to talk about the World Wide Web actually gets rejected by academics as not being novel enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those... They wish they made a different decision. <laughs> well, you know, one t- uh, once in a while now we'll see a tweet and someone has sent it out and then a year later something happens and people retweet it and say, yeah, this didn't age well. I would say yeah. that would be exactly what those academics, what their response would be. Didn't, didn't really age well, your criticism of how this web thing might work. Yes, precisely. Um, had Berners-Lee not come up with this concept, had this not been him who sat down and jotted this picture and this concept... Is it inevitable that somebody else would have done this, do you think? I think so. Um, There were lots of different ideas floating around that were similar to the World Wide Web. Some were a little more ambitious, some were a little more scaled back. You know, they all had different implementations, but there was lots of different ideas floating out there of people trying to experiment with how to do communication in this way. So my guess is we would have seen something like this, but it might be different. Maybe our links would be two ways instead of one ways. Maybe pages would break easier, maybe they'd break less easy. There'd be differences, but I think I think the ideas that Tim Berners-Lee put together were all floating out there, and then he was the right person at the right time to make this happen. Could we have been today, could we be five or ten years behind today if he hadn't? I mean, was it inevitable that it was going to happen immediately, or could it have been a decade later? It could have been. I mean, as a historian, it's hard to, hard to engage in sort of counterfactual histories, mm. but Certainly, like, I mean, as a historian, I teach a class on this at the University of Waterloo, and you've got people making arguments and designing demos that are similar to what Tim Berners-Lee cooks up. You know, as early as 1969, people Hmm. are beginning to, or 1968 even, people are dabbling with mice, they're dabbling with clicking on links, they're dabbling with teleconferences, and none of them take off because they're either too complicated or personal computers aren't around, and you know, there is something special that happens in 1989 and, and then in 1990 where 
all these pieces are able to come together. Well, and, and you know, there's a, there's a great book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, um, and I'm trying to think of which one. It might be The Outliers. It might be David Risk. I can't remember which one it is, but it, it points out that, you know, you look at someone like Bill Gates, you look at someone like Wayne Gretzky, you look at these exceptional people, and yes, they are brilliant people who came up with brilliant ideas, but there's always an element of fortune or good luck involved that the yes. timing, the moment they came along was the perfect timing for their kind of genius. If Bill Gates had been 10 years or 15 years earlier, the personal computer wouldn't have existed and what he was brilliant at would never have worked. It sounds like Berners-Lee was that guy who came along at exactly the right moment. Precisely. And we can actually even see that from the story of the web. Um, Berners-Lee actually cooked up a similar system in 1980 during our earlier contract in uh, Geneva at CERN. And for whatever reason, that didn't go anywhere. And so it was when he came back, he's tackling this problem in 1989. You know, to make the web work, you really, it can't just be a few big mainframe computers that a few people have access to. It really requires people to have personal computers. And that, that really set the groundwork for him to be able to do what he ended up doing. I do want to play a clip. Now, you, I'm, I've, I'm positive that you've seen this clip before. I'm sure many people have seen this clip before. It's from 1994. It was from the Today Show. It was Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric. This is five years after the internet had been created, and a number of people in the world were catching on. But in case anyone thinks that, oh, wow, this thing was created and suddenly it went berserk, let me just play this clip. It's about a minute, minute and a half long. This is Bryant Gumbel and Katie Kirk. Remember, 1994. Here we go. Back now at 56 past. I wasn't prepared to translate that as I was doing that little tease. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At... See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard or it. Around I'd never heard it said. I'd always seen around. the mark, but never yeah. heard it said. And then yeah. it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. <coughs> yeah, well, I heard around big or about in the lunchroom. The See, week. there it is. Violence at NBC. GE com. I mean, well, what, what Allison it? should know. What, what do you is say internet about anyway? Internet is uh, that. Massive computer right. network, mm-hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big? How does one, what do you write to it, like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. With, I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? No, she can't say anything in 10 seconds. Yeah, we're talking in five years into it. 19, 1994, uh, Ian, is not that long ago. And it was, huh? What is internet? It, it's stunning to think that we're that far from there. No, it's shocking. Um, you know, and I think it underscores that a lot of what we do, and once in a while I get asked as a historian, well, why do you study the web? And I go, well, I mean, the web, it, isn't, it certainly isn't distant history. It's not like the Second World War or the 1960s. But it is history. That 25 years ago is a long time, both in sort of years, but also, as that clip illustrates, you know, different in just how we relate to technology. Yeah, and Bryant Gumbel has been asked about it since then. And they go, are you embarrassed by that? And he goes, no, I, I, I didn't know. It was brand new. I, I, you know, why would I be embarrassed? It was new technology. And I think if you had asked a lot of people in 1994, their answer might have been kind of similar. Yes, and I, but I think if you ask them by 1997, it's very different. And it, it's, we always are, we're, we're shocked by how quickly people hop onto the web, mm. you know, compared to like the telephone or the telegraph or television. The, the rate of penetration of which the web comes into people's households is pretty astounding. Who, who do you think was the first to really recognize, and I don't mean individual, I mean like a sector or something like that, who was the first to really get what the internet could be? 
That's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't know if there were any early adopters. I mean, I think sort of around the same time, we see businesses begin to wake up around 94, 95, realizing that something's here. Governments begin to realize they can reach people in a new way. They're, you know, Canada was one of the early adopters in, in trying to get internet access to to everyday people. Well, the first um, the first search engine was based in or was created by Canadians, right? At McGill or one of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Canadians have this record of being really uh, ahead of the curve. Um, Berners Lee, it's interesting because he's been in great demand over the last few days with this anniversary coming up and he's been asked an awful lot about the web and and what he thinks 30 years later and all the rest. And one of the things he said is that he does have concerns now that this thing has become an out of control monster. I can't remember his exact words, but it's to that effect. Um, mm. On balance, when you look at what we've got here and where we've come with this, is the internet a good thing or a bad thing? On balance, I think it's a good thing. It, it really has enabled people to come together in a way that, you know, people were fraying before. But we have this sort of nostalgic vision of life before the Internet. But even before the Internet, people were staying home, they're watching TV, they're lonely. And for what it's worth, I think the Internet really has let people come together. We can come together, you know, across cities. We can come together across the country. We can come together for our love of, you know, Hockey fans can talk about hockey. Buffy the Vampire Slayer can talk about their love of that TV show. To me, and when we look at, you know, what are the most popular platforms that people are using today? I mean, Facebook to some degree, Instagram, Twitter. You know, it's all conversation. It's all sharing. And we can be cynical about it, but I think that really is a net gain for people. Well, what's really stunning, too, is we just played that clip from 94, uh, go the other direction. I mean, that was them trying to look forward in a sense. Go the other way. It is really hard now in 2019 to even remember what life was like without the internet. It, I mean, it, it, when you really stop and think about how different life was 25, 30 years ago, it is stunningly different in every single way. Yeah, I mean, I always laugh, right? I mean, the students I'm teaching today at the University of Waterloo, many of them are, you know, born 2001, 2002. Um, and it, to, to think about life before the internet to them is like me thinking about, you know, horse and buggies coming down. <laughs> That's Street. right. Like it's, it's a totally different world and a different way of relating to each other. Well, an unimaginable world because they've never had to imagine it. No, no. And I was trying to think just before I, before you were coming on, I was coming up with a very brief off the top of my head list and it's a very short list because it could be much, much longer. And I'm thinking, okay, so you take this away. We've got no email. No online shopping, no online reading of articles, no social media, no streaming, no Netflix, no Amazon, no online banking. And I mean, it can go that we could sit here for the next three hours and just list all the things that would not exist that are all now things that we do every single day. Yeah. And the, and the argument I use is, you know, we look at everyday people and, and this, this is for good and worse, but you know, I'm going on Twitter or one of my students can go on Twitter and they can tweet something and it could potentially reach, you know, easily thousands of people, but sometimes tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. But it's, you know, something you couldn't, couldn't have imagined that an everyday person would in theory have the ability to reach, you know, just in, by clicking a button, thousands or tens of thousands of their fellow humans. It's, it's astounding. Just before I let you go, because you are a history professor, uh, people know about the, and I was, again, trying to think of the the major revolutions in the history of the world, the Industrial Revolution, the Iron Age, the 
uh, the cotton gin, the printing press, um, the wheel, I suppose you could throw in there. It's hard to imagine, though, that any of those other things, as impactful and earth-shattering as they were at the time, impacted every facet of society the way the Internet does. does. Yeah, the, the comparison I often use, and we talk about this in, in the classes I teach, is you know, maybe the printing press. But the printing press, to me, is such a pivotal shift in how we relate and how we spread information that you, know, you could divide the history of the world into the pre-print era and then the post-print era. And so we often ask, you know, and our students are out wondering, you know, is the Internet just as important? Is, is this invention basically a new printing press, this new revolutionary shift um, in how we relate to each other? It is, um, as I say, I don't know that in our lifetime, yours or mine or anyone else listening right now, that there is ever going to be, well, you don't know, but I don't know that I can't imagine another invention, another creation that would have the impact the internet has had. I, just, I simply can't fathom that we will see that in our lifetime. And it's only been mm-hmm. 30 years, 30 years and really, you know, 25 or 22, something like that, since it really took effect. It's, it's, it's stunning. Um, Ian Milligan is his name. You can find his book that he has been the editor of the Sage History, sorry, the Sage Handbook of Web History. If you're looking for more on this, uh, Dr. Milligan, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Great to chat. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.